Welcome to the Radiant Church Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Grab a Bible or open up your favorite Bible app as we get into God's Word together. Oh, blessed be his name, church. Oh, blessed be his name, church. For those who are wondering what's all the shouting for, y'all stay tuned. Amen. For those who can't wait to shout, y'all hold on. Y'all hold on. Hold on. Grab your Bibles, y'all. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24. Um, if you do not have a Bible, please just lift your hand. One of our ushers would love to put one of our Bibles in your hand. There's some over here. If you don't own a Bible, please do me a favor and take that Bible that we give to you, write your name in it, and consider that a gift to you to take home. We want everyone to have an access of God's Word if they would like. Amen? Um, the Bibles are coming. Just be patient. Just be patient. While you hold your place in Luke 24, let me read some verses from Luke 23 to set the tone for the moment, and then I want to pray. By this time, verse 44, Luke 23, by this time it was about noon, a darkness fell across the whole land until the three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what happened, they went home in deep sorrow. Verse 55. As his body was taken away, the woman from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. Today, family, we're going to talk on the topic of the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I'm in desperate need of unusual grace right now, Father. God, I pray that you would just make the word come alive. On a Sunday like this Sunday, God, there are folks who have heard this story a thousand times. And God, for us, would you help us to hear it fresh today? Would you help us to see our Savior with new eyes today? For those who may be hearing this story for the first time or the first time in a while, God, I pray that you would bring deep conviction of the truth of these things and the need for a response. God, would you anoint my words in this moment to accomplish more than a mere man can do? Holy Spirit, you have free reign. Would you give me clarity of mind, concision of speech, and courage of communication? And above all, God, will you get the glory out of this moment too? In Jesus' name we pray. All of God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Before we get to the resurrection story, I think it's important that we all make sure that we're on the same page about what led up to this event. Some of you may know the story that this man named Jesus was born in a small town, in a small place, in a really small way, and lived a pretty remarkable life. Even from a young age, he taught with authority. He seemed to have a wisdom beyond his years. 
Then as he grew older in stature and into manhood, he began to make some bold declarations that were backed up with even bolder works. He would turn water into wine. He would feed 5,000 and then 4,000. He would raise from the dead and forgive sins. He would open the eyes of the blind, even call the dead man out of his own grave. And all of this was somehow connected to this claim that he was the Messiah, the promised one to come, that he was the fulfillment of all the prophets of old that we're looking forward to. And those who were following him, those called the disciples, followed him for three years, hearing his teaching, seeing his miracles, and pondering these things in his heart. And then the day came for him finally to be betrayed by the hands of men into the Pharisees' charge. And he was found in Gethsemane praying as he was always wont to do in the mornings. He would go off to pray. And in that moment, soldiers came at him, charged him, arrested him. And in that moment, all of those who had been following him for three years deserted him. And he was arrested all by himself. And Luke 23 tells the story of his unjust conviction, of his bodily suffering as he was whipped and beaten. A literal crown of thorns was placed upon his head mocking the so-called claim that he was the king of the Jews. And then he was nailed to a cross. Six-inch steel spikes driven through both of his wrists and through the tops of his feet. You see, Romans were good at many things, government, art, science, philosophy. Crucifixion was another one. They were masters at brutal killing, and they found the most brutal way to kill the most heinous offenders— which Jesus was found in that lot. And crucifixion was a slow, torturous process. You see, you didn't die from the blood loss, although there was much. You didn't die from the pain, although there was a lot. You died slowly from suffocation. You see, with your hands outstretched and your knees bent, the weight of your body begins to crush your lungs. And every breath gets harder and harder. Three to six hours, any man would slowly, slowly suffocate to death on the cross. And that is where we find this moment where Jesus, with probably the last gasp of of air that he has in his lungs, shouts out, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. The weight of his body crushing his lungs from filling up again, and that would be the last breath he took into the moments that he would see his father again. Now, what happened after it seems puzzling for the, the, even the casual Bible reader because it says that those who were his friends, especially the women, were with Jesus to the end, and they saw his last breath being gasped, and then they saw him die. They took him down off the cross, and he didn't have a tomb of his own. A rich man who was part of the council but disagreed with these things said, I have a tomb that you can bury him, Joseph of Arimathea. And so they buried him in the tomb, but the Roman soldiers and the Pharisees weren't sure about this whole Jesus guy. And so they said, hey, he's going to come steal the body. So they rolled a large 10-foot-tall, two-ton boulder in front of the cave, which was the tomb, and stationed guards out in front. So there would be no funny business. And then those who were following Jesus found themselves huddled up in a room, wondering what had just happened. 
Now, this story might seem a little surprising because we've been walking through the gospel according to Luke for several weeks now. We have heard time and time again Jesus predicting his own death. Just as recently in Luke chapter 9, he said explicitly, hey, y'all, we are going to Jerusalem. When we get there, I'm going to be persecuted, beaten, whipped. Then they're going to kill me. But in three days, I'm going to get back up. And he said this time and time again that he must come, he must die, he must suffer, but don't lose heart, he's coming back. The cute, confusing thing for many of us would be why didn't the disciples seem to believe Jesus? Why were they preparing funeral spices to groom the body for death when he's told them time and time again that he's going to die but he's not going to stay dead? Well, before we point the finger at their unbelief, let's put ourselves in their shoes for just a moment. Most of Jesus' followers at this time were Jews who had been taught from what we call now the Old Testament. They would have just called the Bible. And they have been hearing and learning and memorizing the promises of God since youth. And God had made several large promises in the Old Testament, what we call covenants. And these promises begin right in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit and disobeyed God and sin had entered the world, God began to unfold for them the consequences of their decision. But even in that moment, he gives a light of hope. Do you remember it? He says, oh, the serpent, symbolizing Satan and death, will strike the heel of the Son of Man, but the Son of Man will crush the serpent's head. That is called the Proto-Evangelion. The first gospel message in the scriptures is found in Genesis chapter 3. And the Jews who have been following Jesus knew that story that, well, God said that one day death itself is going to die. But they looked around and saw him dead in the tomb. And then the great promise found in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, that Abraham, although you are advanced in years, don't call people old, amen, although he's advanced in years, And although your wife has pretty much clocked out of birthing children, don't worry, have faith. Not only will I give you a son, I will give you more descendants than the stars in the sky. And those who were following Jesus knew that story too. They had heard that promise too. Yet Abraham would die at a ripe old age having only eight sons. Not hundreds, not thousands, no people. Another promise that they were waiting on. And then in Moses, the great Exodus story, in Exodus chapter 19 through 24, God gives another promise to Moses. It says, Moses, if you would lead my people, if you will obey my righteous commands and decrees, I will preserve you as a people. I will look after you. I will cover you. I will bless you. And yet in Jesus' day, they weren't their own people, didn't have their own nation. They were living under Roman rule. Yet another promise that God seemed to make that didn't seem to come true. Then a promise to David. For Samuel, God promises David, David, you are a man after my own heart. Because I have chosen you, one of your heirs will sit on the throne forever. What a great promise for a father and a king to hear that because of your righteousness and my love, your children will be kings. And David believed, and yet those who were following Jesus looked around, and there hadn't been a king in Jerusalem for hundreds of years. What about that promise, God? And then there is a cryptic promise found in Jeremiah chapter 31. 
where the prophet says, there will come a day where there will be a new covenant that I will make with my people, God says. That I will write the law not on tablets of stone, but I will write the law on their very hearts. There will be no need for a priest or animal sacrifices that one day I will dwell with my people and my people will dwell with me. That I will be their God and they will be my treasured possession. And yet the Old Testament closes, and by the time Jesus is born, there had been silence from heaven for hundreds of years. No prophets, no words, no miracles. And so we begin to see how maybe his disciples thought that Jesus' claims to be the Son of God, Jesus' claims to be the fulfillment, Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, were one of just many promises God made but didn't keep. I know what you're thinking. You're trying to jump to the end of the story, but remember, these people are human too. Just like us, God has made some promises to us, has he not? God has made some assurances in his word about the blessings of following Christ, and does it not feel that sometimes God isn't holding up his end of the bargain? That sometimes the peace that he promises we don't feel, the provision that he promises we don't see, the future and a hope that he guarantees doesn't look as bright as the scriptures paint. And in this moment of uncertainty, after a brutal Friday night and a silent Saturday, this is where the disciples find themselves. God, what are you doing? We've heard of these covenants, these promises to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to the prophet Jeremiah. We've heard all these promises, God, and we've held out hope that Jesus was finally the one. But now he's dead too. That's why it seems a little bit reasonable that even though Jesus promised time and time again that I will go to Jerusalem, I will be persecuted, I will be whipped and beaten, I will die, but I will come back to life. It's a little bit reasonable to understand why the Jews might have been a little disheartened and disappointed. Because from their point of view, this has happened before. Moses believed and didn't receive. David believed and didn't receive. The prophet promised and we didn't see. Maybe this is just another long line of disappointments from God. Maybe we'll just keep waiting another 300 years to see if God would send the true Messiah. And so that's why the women went to prepare spices and ointments to anoint his body. But look at Luke 24. Oh, I love how Luke 24 starts. In the middle of the darkness of the heart and in the uncertainty of the moment, the word of God says early on a Sunday morning. I love that word because there's an eagerness and anticipation. But early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. And the men said, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Y'all, this is what the resurrection means. Can you imagine 
those women who have been taught the Old Testament since they were children, all these promises of God, and yet they look around and see none of it true. Following Jesus, and he's made promises to them. That if I'm the way, the truth, and the light, and anyone who comes after me will be with the Father, and yet they are coming to his grave to anoint his body, thinking that God has let us down yet again. When they walk in, he isn't there. Can you imagine the hope and the fear? Maybe they stole his body. They they saw Jesus and couldn't even recognize him, thinking he was the gardener, and they pleaded with him, just give us back his body. And Jesus ministered to them, and when he began to speak, they recognized who he was. Family, let me just park here for just a moment. The resurrection is so important because it is the proof that God keeps his promises. The resurrection is so important because it is the proof that God keeps his promises. You see, the people of God in those times, the Jewish people were waiting on God. God, you said if we obey your laws through Moses, we will be blessed. God, you say that we will be your covenant people in Abraham. God, you said that we would have a king forever in David. God, you said that you would write your word on our hearts and we would dwell with you in Jeremiah, but we haven't seen any of it. Then along comes Jesus through the lineage of David, living a perfect life to keep the Mosaic law, obeying all the commands commanded by the Abraham covenant, and then invited his people to dwell with him as in the prophet of Jeremiah, all of the promises Jesus fulfilled in his life, death, and but wait. The resurrection would have made it complete. If Jesus was just a good man who lived a good life and died for bad people, then he would just be a good teacher worth reading along with any other philosopher or teacher of his day. You see, we didn't need another good man. We'd had a good man through David and Abraham. And Moses, we'd had a good man in the prophets of old. We'd had good men in the disciples who followed. We didn't need another good man. We needed a God man. Someone who had the power not to just feel bad for us in our sin, but to do something about it. Why is the resurrection so important? It is the very proof that God keeps his promises. Family, I'm going to talk to you in just a second, but let me talk to those who may be on the outside looking in right now. If you are here this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ, you're not a believer or a Christian, let me talk to you for just a moment. First, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're worshiping with us. I don't know if you were bribed, begged, or asked. I don't know how I got you here, but amen. Thank you that you're here. May we take that. But here's the reality. The resurrection is a fact. It's not just a Bible story. The resurrection is a fact. As a matter of fact, National Geographic in 2015 and 2016 visited a site called the Holy Church of the Sepulchre where that has been reputed to be the actual burial place of Jesus. The Emperor Constantine built a church around the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea to protect and enshrine as a holy site. It is one of the holiest places in the entire world for the Christian. National Geographic was allowed 60 hours to come in to take samples to do their research to see if they could verify this claim that Jesus' tomb is empty. Hear how important this is, y'all. Jesus and the Word of God hinges the entirety of Christianity on the truth of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way, 
that if there is no resurrection of the dead, we are to be pitied above all people. Why? Because we are wasting our time and wasting our lives. I don't know about you, but let me put it this way. If somebody walks into this room right now with indisputable proof that they have Jesus' body in their trunk, I'll turn off the lights myself and go home. I'm for real. Walking with Jesus costs too much. It's a little too hard. It costs me to say no to too many things that my flesh wants to say yes to for me to say all of that and not have eternity with him. I'm not here just to be a moral person. And so you can undo Christianity right now by showing us Jesus' body. Maybe not for you, but for me, that's all it would take. Stay saved now. Y'all stay with me. Y'all stay saved. For 2,000 years, they've sought to stamp Christianity out. They have killed us, sawn us in half, drowned us, separated us, burned our Bibles and our churches, cut the tongues out of our preachers, and still today that persecution is happening all around the world. But all that you would need to do to shut Christianity down is show us as Jesus' body. And so they invited National Geographic in, and they gave them 60 uninterrupted hours to take every sample, every picture, every analysis they could do. And after those 60 hours and several months of research and lab results, you know what they came back and said? They said, we have no reason to doubt the validity of the claim that this was Jesus' tomb. They don't got no angle. They've got nothing to prove. They're not a Christian organization. They're just scientists who say the facts say so. But you know what separates Jesus' tomb from all other tombs in and around Jerusalem? It's the only one that's empty, y'all. It's the only one that's empty. So National Geographic says, no, somebody was here, but they ain't here anymore. So for, if you are an unbeliever today, if you're not a Christian today, if you're not a 100% sure that if you would die right now that you would go be with the Father forever, you have got to reckon with the fact of the resurrection. Now hear me, I get it. I know you've been hurt by the church. I know that somebody standing up on a stage like this, dressed like this, talking like this, has told you things that were untrue and hurtful. I know people who called themselves Christians did the worst things to you. I know all those things might be true, but you know what else is true? Is the tomb is still empty. You got to do something with that, y'all. If you are not a believer here today, don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. It's all right. We got plenty more. If you're not a believer here today, yes, it's true that you've got some pain. Yes, it's true that you've got some questions, but the tomb is still empty. You've got to do something with that because that is equally true. And for my brothers and sisters, oh, y'all get ready. For my brothers and sisters who are here today, let me just end right here by saying this. The resurrection is proof that God keeps his promises. Hear me clear. Pastor Marcus, there's a promise in the word that says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So when I see the world winning, when I see the church losing... I got a promise that says the gates of hell will not prevail. Pastor Marcus, Pastor Neil, I got a promise in the word that says that perfect love casts out all fear. When I am uncertain and when I am unafraid and when I have no idea what to do, yet it's all on me to do something, I have a promise in the scripture that says perfect love casts out all fear. When I look at my children 
and I wonder how the world is going to steer them to the right or to the left, I have a promise that if I train them in the way that they should go, that they will not depart from it when they were old. We have promises to hold on to. And without the resurrection, we could have some room for doubt. Because, well, God said some stuff that ain't happened to. Well, it don't feel like it's getting any better. I don't feel the perfect love that casts out all fear. I don't feel like the church is prevailing in the midst of ungodliness and wickedness. I don't feel like these things are true. But, oh, God, when we look at the resurrection, when we look at the empty tomb, we've got no reason to doubt We've got no reason to be afraid because God keeps his promises. He kept that one, and he's going to keep these ones too. Family, some of y'all have prayed in the midnight hour, and God has whispered some things in your ear. I'm going to get spooky for a second. Y'all stay with me. Some of y'all have prayed for your children, prayed for your marriage, prayed for your future, prayed for your next step in your career, prayed for your very soul and salvation, and you have felt in the midnight hour God say some truth to you. But like the disciples of old, you are struggling to believe because it don't feel true. It don't look true. It hasn't been true. And you've got no evidence that it's ever going to be true. Can I give you all some evidence? Can I give you all some evidence? The tomb is still empty, y'all. The tomb is still empty. We have a promise keeping God. And it may take some time. Abraham didn't see it. David didn't see it. Moses didn't see it. The prophet Jeremiah didn't see it. But in Christ Jesus, you will get what God promised. Because everything that God promised is in him. Will you believe? Let me give you something to hold on to this week. Anytime the devil tries to whisper in your ear a lie. Anytime the enemy tries to whisper in your ear something that's untrue. Anytime the devil tries to accuse you of who you actually really are. Anytime you see the devil doing what the devil does, all you got to do, you don't got to look at your performance because you'll fail. You got to look at your track record because I ain't going to be good enough. You ain't got to memorize all the Bible because we know we struggle with Bible memory. All you got to know that you know that you know is the tomb is still empty. God keeps his promises. God is never going to leave me or forsake me. That when I'm up in the mountains or down in the valleys, God is there because he promised that he will be there. And God keeps his promises. And whenever I doubt, whenever I'm unsure, whenever I'm uncertain, all I got to do is look at the empty tomb. And that's all you have to do as well. Would you pray with me? Father, oh God, oh God, oh, that tomb is still empty. You are still a promise-keeping God. You are still the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the bright and morning star, the day spring, the man who has no need to repent because he never lies. You are still God. And the resurrection is the proof. That's why we sing. That's why we celebrate. That's why we live this way and trust this book because you have never failed us yet. God, thank you. Thank you that you went to the bowels of hell. Proclaim victory to the spirits in captivity. Got tired of being dead and walked out of the grave all on your own. To prove, to prove, although you had no need to prove anything to anybody. To prove to us that you are exactly who you said you are. 
and you will do exactly what you said you will do. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining our family in North Charleston as we heard God's word preached today. We would love to connect with you. You can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us a message to learn more about what Radiant Church is doing or support the vision of Radiant Church at radiantcharleston.com giving.